0: You know, Kayla doesn't always appreciate when I talk up her food, especially right before we're about to eat it with other people. It just brings that certain amount of pressure that you're aware of, that it might not live up to uh, high accolades, or there might be a letdown. Well, in spite of that, let me just say, right from the beginning, that we are coming this morning to a very rich morsel of goodness in John chapter 11. I know my treatment of this goodness could be a, a very different story, but this is a lofty passage for us to, to think about and to meditate on this morning. It's, it's a blessing that we can say that each week, right, as we come to God's Word. This is God's Word. It's, it's rich. It's profitable for us. But I'm particularly excited about this text and con- to consider really really a very familiar passage. And again, to be awed by this one that we've been singing about, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we need to see him again this morning, do we not? We need to see him. That should be our prayer even now as we, as we come before uh, this passage. My prayer is that, that I don't get in the way of that. I hope you've had the chance to at least read through it, maybe once or twice uh, this week. Very familiar story, even to those outside of the church, right? Right? Not very many that that haven't at least heard of the the raising of Lazarus from the dead and maybe even have heard of Christ's famous statement, right? I am the resurrection and the life. So as we enter into this Easter season, we're going to see that in God's plan, the, the events of this very chapter ultimately lead to Christ's arrest and execution, At the very end of John 11, you may be familiar, but John writes this as he's referring to this Lazarus event, what just took place, and he says this, So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. This was a monumental event in the life of Christ. Verse 57, Now the chief priests, after this day, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Of all the signs and the miracles that Christ did, even, even just in the book of John, the raising of Lazarus is the most climactic, it's, it's like a crescendo, and it kicked into action a chain of events that would lead to the death of Christ. And so this is, this is very timely for us to consider, especially as next week Tom leads us to consider the, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This account is lengthy, it's it's many verses, and so I want to help, hopefully, just you to be able to hang your thoughts this morning as we walk through it. And to do that, I want to give you five hooks. Some of the hooks will barely more than mention, and that's important for you to hear. Some of the hooks will barely more than mention, and you should keep that in mind, especially as as we'll spend the bulk of our time on on hooks one and two. I want these to serve really as, as mile markers As we walk through this narrative, and if you're a note taker like I am, I want to give you these five hooks right up front, and then hopefully they'll make sense as we come up to each one in this text. Hook number one, we're going to see a purposeful death. Hook number two, a bold claim. Number three, an impassioned reaction. Number four, a miraculous feat. And then finally, number five, a mixed Response: These should make sense as we read through. Let's start in John 11. We'll read the first seven verses. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. While this chapter, John 11, is known For the raising of Lazarus, John, the gospel writer here, it's interesting, he he takes 42 verses of scripture before even getting there, before even getting to the main event. As a masterful storyteller, he wants us this morning to ponder the significance of this miracle, and so he prepares us for it. He wants us to grab onto the significance of what is about to happen. And it's familiar for us. And so, so we need to focus in. He does this by drawing our attention to, to several key truths, many event, uh, many details before arriving there at the tomb. A lot of these we won't even be able to, to touch, as, as time wouldn't allow. This, this would warrant five or six sermons, I think. But from the very beginning, if you look here, the start of the story, we see clearly that Lazarus was sick, right? John states that in one way or another, five times in the verse Uh, first six verses. And since, he says, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were loved by Jesus, as John makes very clear, they're family friends, as we know, the sisters then send a messenger to Jesus, who at this time is about 100 miles north of where this family is down in Bethany. This message makes it to Jesus in verse 3. You see that Lord He whom you love is ill. Lazarus isn't doing well. But it's in how Jesus responds, it's his response to that message that shows very clearly that Jesus had a plan for this sickness. A plan that was about to unfold in this story to accomplish a specific purpose. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus knew full well what was about to happen, right? That he would bring Lazarus back from the dead. He knew this, and so he tells the messenger, this this illness will not lead to death, ultimately. That's not where it's going to, to end, even though for everyone else in this story, it did lead to death, right? A son was lost. A brother was lost. A, fan, a friend here had, had passed away. Death had occurred. And it brought with it all the ugliness that death brings about. Sometimes we don't think about that. Lazarus did breathe his last, or at least that's what he thought. What Jesus is saying here, there's, there's more here than meets the eye. There's, there's a hidden, greater design. This illness, Christ is saying, will lead to something far greater than death. It's for the glory of God and His Son. Prepare to see me in a whole new light, Jesus says. With this loaded statement in verse 4, right from the very beginning, right in the first few sentences Jesus hangs a banner if you will over this entire episode there's a purpose for what you're about to go through Jesus says very plainly this event is so that God and the son of God may be glorified those privileged enough that day to be there in attendance and there were many there on purpose They were about to see God in greater and more amazing detail than they ever could have imagined. and That was the point. God, in the person of his son Jesus, seen more clearly. Seeing him is what this story is all about. In fact, if you start in chapter 1, that's what this whole book and and what this whole Bible is about. John 1.14, the word that is, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's now seen. He's now been revealed. This is how John uses this word glory or glorify throughout his gospel. To be glorified, as he says is going to happen in this text, refers to God's being known. Being seen, in fact, Put on display. So Jesus tells us right in the opening paragraph, like a like a thesis statement of our paper: this event is to show you God. It's going to highlight the Son of God, and so He says, "Pay attention, look at Him." Like with everything else in this universe, this sickness and death, and then resurrection. We're designed to draw our attention to Him. Some in our day find that to be quite egotistical of God, right? Even selfish of Him, or or at a minimum, unloving. But we must remember that God, the creator of all, He knows that the most loving thing that He can do for us as His creatures is to show us more of himself. And that is love. This connection between God's love for his people and and God's glory or or making himself known is is made even more clear in verses 5 and 6. You need to see this. Look there in verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, Or more literally, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. At first glance, you might think you've you've read that wrongly, right? Because he loved them, he delayed? How does that make sense? I think if we were envisioning this story, we'd probably say because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he dropped everything and headed for Bethany, right? Because he loved them, he, he jumped into action. Well, at the very least, because he loved them so, but he couldn't get to the village right away, he, he healed Lazarus from afar, and, and all was well. I think that's how we want it to happen. He did love this family. If you read through this text, he, he loved this family. John makes it clear. But Is this how to show it? Therefore, he He stayed? What we see here about love, and and especially God's love for his people, is it doesn't mean getting what we think best at the time we think it best. Because the most loving thing that God can do is to show us himself, even if it means ordaining trial, Jesus purposely stayed away. He had something better even though it meant walking through grief. This passage must help us reorient our thinking as to what God's love is. It's not about Him giving us temporal ease or or eliminating hardship as, as soon as He can. Sometimes, in fact, many times, God's love is seen in the delay. And in this situation, Jesus waited, and yes, it brought pain. Verse 14, Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. But Jesus knew the end, right? He knew where this trial was heading, where it would lead, and that he would be seen like he had never been seen before. This was divine love, even if it didn't appear to be so. Jesus would now be known and experienced and enjoyed in ways that never would have been possible apart from this very trial. And Jesus knows that. We do not, but Jesus knows that. I know we must tread carefully here as many of you have walked through deep and unexplainable sorrow and many of us here will walk through deep and unexplainable sorrow as we as we strain to understand why why did this happen why is he silent oh god why why the delay but we must take heart even from this behind the scenes glimpse god's delay does not mean no design God's delay does not mean absence of love. Rather, his delay may be the greatest mark of love as he knows our greatest need is to see more of him. Hook number one, a purposeful death. There was an intention here. Second hook is a bold claim, and and we call it this because of Jesus' statement here in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of Jesus' seven I am statements as has been mentioned here in the book of John. Let's pick up in verse 17 and we'll read down through verse 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. There were many there. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. In this scene, we really see Jesus taking the time to minister to Martha. I hope you heard that. And true to his form, he does so by redirecting her thoughts toward himself. He invites Martha in this paragraph, he invites Martha in her pain to consider him. This is the point of the narrative. And at this point in the story, we see Jesus and the disciples getting close to Bethany. And and when Martha heard this, she, she runs out to meet him. Look what she says in verse 21, exactly what her sister was going to say just a few verses later. Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. She knows Jesus. She's seen him heal before. She knows he had the power to heal her brother. But he wasn't there for them. Jesus didn't show up for them. So she thought. She's understandably saddened And expresses that to Jesus. He begins to comfort her there in verse 23. He uses this intentionally, I think, ambiguous statement. Your brother will rise again. Martha agrees. Of course he will. Verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha believed the scriptures. There would be a future resurrection. Her doctrine was was orthodox. She was right in her thinking. but, But Jesus has something else in mind. Jesus lifts her eyes beyond her doctrine of the resurrection to the person who is the resurrection. Martha, the resurrection and the life is standing right here before you, is what he says. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the arrival of that that future day that you've been looking for. I am the coming Messiah. And with the Messiah, death ends I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is a bold claim by Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. I think in in some relatable way, I've heard this claim described like this. It might be like you going into a bank to get a loan. And so you meet with the loan officer or maybe a couple loan officers. You, you give them all of your financials, your assets, liabilities. You, you fill out the paperwork, and, and he comes back and says, I'm sorry, we, we just can't do this. So you, you schedule an appointment with the, the vice president of the bank, and you go through the same process, more paperwork, and, and hoping, really hoping to get this loan. And, and the VP comes back and says, we, we just can't make this happen. It's too much of a risk. But somehow you're able to get an audience with the president of the bank, who graciously sits down with you and, and barely even looks at your papers. And just after a short meeting, he says, You've got their loan. I'll, I'll do it. It's yours. And you're confused. I, I, I don't understand. I've, I've just met with everyone else in the bank and, and I've been, not, been denied several times. Yes, I, I understand that, but, but you've got the loan, it, it's yours. I'm telling you, here, here it is. But, but I'm confused. The other, the president says, look, sir, or ma'am, you, you don't understand. I, I am the bank. The loan is yours. What does the president mean in that crude illustration? Clearly, he's not saying that I'm the building or that, that I'm the brick and the mortar. What he's saying is, I represent and embody all that the bank has to offer. All the decisions here at this bank come from and depend directly on me. In essence, he's saying, because of your connection to me, even this brief connection, the loan is yours. I am the bank. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus makes this bold statement in a humble but very direct way. If you have me, you have life. I'm the giver of life. In fact, that's why I came, that you might be raised from death unto life. You see, connection to this Christ destroys the corruption caused by the fall. The corruption that misses no one in here this morning. The corruption that ensures that you are born spiritually dead, that misses none of us. Dead in sin. Dead to God and not even aware of it. Blind to even our need. That's that's our default position death. But as the Spirit prompts, and as you turn to Christ in faith, you are brought from death unto life, and this because he is the resurrection and the life. With this statement, Jesus was offering eternal life to Martha and to all who would ever believe in him. That's what he says in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die like, like Lazarus and all who has gone before him, though they die, yet they will live. And everyone who lives, Martha, like, like you, everyone who lives and believes in me, shall never die. That's what he says. Never ending spiritual life, freedom to be in God's presence forever. This is yours. This isn't the only time that Jesus talked like this. Even in John, he said in chapter 5, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. And again whoever hears my word and believes has passed from death unto life. John 8 whoever keeps my words will never see death. The heart may stop and the body placed in the ground and it will. But those connected to Christ looking, resting and believing in him will go on living. That's that's what he says. Not even a second in darkness apart from him. Martha, whoever believes in me shall never die. Notice what Jesus says next here. This was not for him just theological banter. It wasn't just an important part of the creed to pass down. He wants Martha to make sure that, that, that he, she gets that creed. Jesus wanted her to actually believe this, to stake her life on this truth. You see, Jesus knew the scriptures that those who believe in him, it's those that will never be put to shame. And so he lovingly asks her in verse 26, Martha, do you believe this? He goes right to the heart. Belief in him was Jesus' point in even having this conversation with her. Belief in him summarized this whole day. And Martha and others' confidence and faith would swell in him because of his day. This this was the point. Look at what he says to his disciples in verse 15. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. I'm glad because now you either initially have faith or your faith is going to be strengthened in me. Again, verse 40, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Even in this story, as Jesus looks to the Father and prays in verse 42, he said, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This is why John wrote this book famous verse in John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which aren't written in this book, but these that are written are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. Is it not clear? Jesus calls for, even now, he calls for and desires our trust in him. He wants us to find rest and life in him. He's the giver of life. And yet why do we look for it in so many other places? So in obvious and compassionate grace, Jesus asks her this question, Martha, do you believe? Do you believe that life is found only in me? Am I your only hope? Just ponder, even now, a, a savior that would care enough to ask that question. takes the time and, and looks. D.A. Car- Carson puts it this way, said, Jesus' concern was to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him alone who can provide it. Well, you then see Martha's reply. We won't spend time here, but yes, Lord, I I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She got it. She knows that this is the one to whom we must cling. Even as disciples of him this morning, is your faith resting in this Christ? You're going to him as the only source of real hope. Perhaps even for the first time as one who has never come and seen Christ or placed faith in him. Life life is found in him even today. Whoever believes. Hook number three, and, and much more briefly. An impassioned Reaction And this, just in a word before moving on, I want you to notice the compassion that Christ has here in weeping over the loss. Verse 35, the, the shortest verse in the Bible, you may have it memorized, Jesus wept. And he did. He grieved. He sympathized in this passage. But even more than this, We see in this short paragraph, there was was agitation in Jesus' soul. Apparently directed to to death itself, or perhaps the, the unbelief that he was surrounded by there, but look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Down to verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. There's more going on here than, than simply sorrow for a passing of a friend, although that's, that's clearly a part of this. Jesus did weep with those who wept. But Jesus was, was deeply moved in his spirit, it says, greatly troubled. The text reads that the words used here, in fact, indicate a, a strong indignation that Jesus was feeling, an agitation in his heart as he peers into the face of death. Jesus was no friend of death. He was fully aware of where it came from as a result of sin and as a result of the fall, and it, it troubled him here in this scene is once again Christ experienced firsthand the devastation that sin and death bring on this world. One theologian, B.B. Warfield, states it this way, and then we'll move on. He says, it is death that is the object of his wrath here. And behind death, the one who has the power of death and whom Jesus has come into the world to destroy. And this leads to Hook. Number four, a miraculous feat. And we'll basically read this text and make just some brief comments. Look at verse 38 as we read. Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb, was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? and let him go it was at this very moment that verse 4 comes to fruition this illness does not lead to death jesus said but it's for the glory of god it's so that the son of god may be glorified through it there was no doubt in anyone's mind that lazarus was dead at this point you have to remember at this time they couldn't check for for brain activity right they couldn't hook him up to a, to a heart monitor to make sure that the, the line was flat. In fact, it, it was not uncommon at this point or during this time for people who were thought to be dead and placed in a box to, to begin tapping on the box. That, that happened. No, John makes a point to ensure we know that he's dead. In fact, he tells us Lazarus has been in the tomb now for four days. Martha says his body is, has begun to stink at this point. There was a common belief just shortly after this time, even among the Jews, that the spirit of a person would would hover around the body for three days, waiting to re-enter if it could. But by the fourth day, it would flee. It would start to see the body decomposing, and and the spirit would leave. This is day four. In the words of one commentator, Jesus was about to display his power on a rotting corpse. And even though rotting, in just a word and with a loud voice, so that all would hear and know, Jesus commands death to let go. And it does. Can you imagine just the seconds between him saying that and the seconds waiting for, to see what what was going to happen? Is he going to come out? Can you imagine him there appearing at at the door of the tomb? Jesus showed himself to be the resurrection and the life by by giving new life to Lazarus. And this is what Jesus does. He gives new life (laughs) to all who believe. And that, that is no less a miraculous feat than what was witnessed on that day. Him giving new life to those who believe. That's what Jesus does. Final hook. Hook number five, a mixed response. There was a mixed response to Christ here. There always is. That's not news for us, or that's not an oddity in the scriptures. People respond to Christ's claims in one of two ways. They either see him by by God's amazing grace, they see him for for who he really is, and they bow in repentance and in faith, calling out to him. Or they reject him as as unnecessary. The same is true here, verse 45. Some believed and others rejected. In fact, in this account, some began to then plot his death. Many of the Jews, therefore, in verse 45, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some trusted, even though we're not told much about their faith here, but others, for others, Jesus was a concern only because he was a problem now to them. Starting to disrupt their lives and their their culture threatening their very existence, they thought. And so in verse 48, you see, if we let this Jesus go on like this, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so it's at this point that we see Caiaphas come onto the scene. He steps here into the story with his plan, and and he discloses that. His plan is to arrest and to kill Jesus. In his thinking, trying to save the whole nation from going down in flames. We need to kill him. Do you remember this? The statement that he makes, we we have to read it, the statement that he makes drips with irony as one who, who completely rejects this Messiah actually declares the gospel without knowing it. Look at verse 39, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Listen to that. Some irony there. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not... That the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God those who are scattered abroad. In the same way that God, as you remember, used Used Balaam's donkey. And in the same way that he's used those who have rejected him in the past, here God uses Caiaphas to unearth the most important truth in the universe. He says, You must understand it's better for you that one man should die than the whole nation. Is that better for us? Sacrifice Jesus, he says. Take his life so that the whole nation will be spared. What merciful irony is spoken in that statement? He had no idea. Obviously, this is just as God had intended. Sacrifice Jesus' life so that all would be spared. The one for the many, the Lamb of God for the sin of the world. That was his plan. So some rejoiced in this and believed, as we should right now. But some wanted nothing to do with him, get rid of him. And so, in verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. We don't want him. There was a mixed response to this miracle, just as there is today, Christ's words we need to hear this, Christ's words always demand a response, even, even here this morning as we've considered this text ask yourself, who is Jesus to me I know that's a familiar and can often be even a, a trite question to some but this is the most important question that we can ask and answer who, who is Jesus to you See more to us than, than just a theological point or a creed. As we examine, it is their spiritual fruit to back our claim of faith in this Jesus. We must examine, and we must look to Him. In this account, we are blessed. People of God, we are blessed to see the glory of the Son of God in this text. We're blessed to even for a few minutes consider the resurrection and the life. We are blessed to be told and to know that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Just as Jesus looks at Martha and arrests her attention, so we must answer his question. Do we believe this? May he grant us grace to see him and to believe in him. I'm going to pray for us, and, and as is our practice, we want to respond to this word. want to respond to him in, in gratitude for who this Jesus is. So I encourage you to to pray loudly so that we could all pray with you and to pray briefly so that many can join in. I'll begin us and then an elder will close us. Father, we are blessed to, to know this resurrection and the life. Lord, would you open our eyes as the most loving thing that you can do for us. Would you open our eyes to see him more fully even from this text, and Lord, even this week as we, as we consider this Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.